Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you said to the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 33, verse 3, Call unto me, and I will show you great and mighty things of which you knew not. Lord, this morning we are calling unto you that you would show us great and mighty things. I ask for those who are listening that you would open the eyes of their hearts. We don't want mere intellectual stimulation. We want changed hearts. We want your revelation. We hunger for that. I ask also that you would put your words in my mouth so that we don't have to listen to me, a mere man. But we want to hear what you have to say. And we ask it in the name of Jesus for his honor and glory. Amen. All right, as, as uh, I normally do, I want to begin with a scripture reading. This one is in 2 Chronicles verse, uh, chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, there are many calls going through the church, and when I say church, I mean God's people. I mean the church. I'm not limiting the word church to Grace Community uh, Church. There are calls for revival, I believe, that are going across the land. Uh, and one of, and frankly, revival is desperately needed. And I don't think there's anybody here in this congregation that would question that. One of the verses that is often cited uh, with regard to revival, and I will say this too, there is a lot of praying going on for revival, and it needs to increase. Um, and one of the verses often cited uh, and quoted uh, in the area of revival is what I just read, Second uh, Chronicles 7.14. Second Chronicles 7.14 is what I want to really focus on, actually 13 and 14, because Second Chronicles uh, 7, 13 and 14 are the prerequisite that needs to happen for there to be revival. Uh, so what I want to do, first of all, in the verses I read, I want to lay out for you the context in which those verses appear. In Second Chronicles, beginning in chapter 2 and running through to about the first part of chapter 7, what we have here is Solomon is building the temple in Jerusalem and dedicating it. In chapter 6, uh, Solomon prays a prayer of dedication before the assembled people there at the temple. And, and frankly, it takes most of chapter 6, and it's a prayer you would do well to look it up and read it. Uh, it's a wonderful prayer that he prays. 
But one of the things he does in the course of the prayer, uh, every few verses, he will list particular judgments that are being brought against the people by God when they sin. Uh, and he, as he describes these various judgments, and by that I mean things like uh, military defeat, military setback, or captivity, or uh, drought, uh, insect invest, uh, infestation of various types, mildew, uh, uh, plague, disease, pestilence. Uh, as he describes that, what he says after each one of those, because he recognizes for those judgments to have come meant there is sin ongoing among the people. And so after each one of those segments, or each one of those verses where he describes those judgments, he says this, and I'm, I'm summarizing, if, people, if the people will turn from their sins and pray and seek you, hear from heaven and forgive their sin and restore them. Okay, verse 14, uh, or beginning in verse 12, 12 through 14 is God's answer to Solomon's prayer. Uh, what he is saying is, yes, I will do that. Now, the context in which these verses are found, obviously, is the nation of Israel and the temple. However, the principle behind the context transcends the context. The principle behind the verses, I'm sorry, transcends uh, the context. In fact, the Apostle Paul didn't hesitate to utilize uh, Old Testament scripture to make a point that was outside of the context in which that scripture was originally given. So, for example, in 2 Corinthians uh, 6, 17, and 18, he quotes from Isaiah 52. But what he is doing, in which says, uh, my people come out from among them and touch not the unclean thing, what he is doing, though, is he is taking the principle of that verse because it transcends the context and saying that uh, to the church uh, in Corinth. Uh, the truth of the matter is, it applies to us 13 and 14 apply to us, applies to us, because we are his people called by his name. Galatians 3, 28 and 29 says that if we are in Christ, then there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no slave, there is no free, there is no man, there is no woman. We are all one in Christ, and if we are one in Christ, we are Abraham's descendants. So in the church, Jew and Gentile alike constitute spiritual Israel. So does it apply to us? I would say it most definitely applies to us. Now, how does it apply to us is what I want to look at. How does it affect the church today? Uh, and in particular, what is it that is a prerequisite for revival. Well, one thing I want to say right off the bat is that first, and I never hear this, I won't say it's not quoted with 14, but I have never heard anybody quote verse 13 with 14. In other words, verse 13, uh, remember, says, 
when I send, shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command a locust to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, then if my people, okay, 13 is the foundation and basis for 14. The two constitute one principle, and they must be cited together. We have to keep that in mind whenever we're using Second uh, Chronicles uh, 7.14. Um, because 13, let me just say this quickly, 13 is, uh, you know, he talks about drought, he talks about locusts, he talks about pestilence. Those are merely a summation of the various judgments that Solomon listed uh, in his prayer in chapter 6. They are not the totality of the judgments Solomon mentioned, uh, but they are a summary of that. And judgments being brought against the people means there is sin in the camp. And I would suggest to you that judgments of verse 13, that is merely a summary, but God's judgments, when they begin to come, are designed to get our attention. And I would again suggest to you that the sin is not limited to the darkness of our culture. There is sin in the camp. There is sin in the church. Now, I'm not going to go through a litany of what they are. Uh, in other words, I, I don't want to just totally depress all of us. Uh, I mean, I was depressed when I got up here because I'd seen what was going on. But the, the, what I want us to understand is that the judgments uh, summarized in verse 13, when they come, are designed to get our attention. God's judgments primarily, the purpose of them primarily is redemptive. In other words, they're not designed to destroy everything and wipe it out. They're designed to get the attention of his people and call them to forsake their sin and repent and turn to him. And I would suggest to you that the church in general is in need of exactly that. Uh, and it is going to result in no repentance, no revival. Because I can tell you, God is not going to use a bride whose garments are ripped and torn with dissension and sin. He always will purify his people first. Now, you say, people say, well, that didn't happen at Pentecost. Yes, it did. Jesus said in John 15, 3, you are already clean by the word I have spoken to you. He had been preparing them. He will prepare us first before there's revival. Now, uh, in fact, um, the Puritans were very sensitive to this very thing. If they had a drought or, let's say, a, a, a sudden Indian attack, they were immediately on their knees crying out to God, asking what they had done and so they could repent. Uh, they were very sensitive to that. Uh, so one of the problems we've got here, and we've got to realize this, folks, is when judgments come, First Peter 4.17 says, judgment begins at the house of the Lord. So we have to keep uh, that in mind. Now, the, frankly, the judgments of verse 13 are ongoing right now. And again, I'm not going to list a bunch of what they are, but you can, if you've 
been born in the last three weeks, you're very aware of what's going on, unless you're just totally oblivious to all that's around you. Uh, but I would suggest even COVID fits one of the verse 13 judgments. Now, I think one of the problems that we have in this regard and why our attention is not being captured by what God is doing uh, is because we think we can maintain control. We think we have control. Uh, frankly, we focus more on science and technology than what heaven is saying. Now, for example, drought. Well, good irrigation brought even from a long way can take care of that, right? Right. Locusts invading the land? Hey, pesticide, bug, you know, get a, give them a dose of bug be gone. Uh, you know, and what about pestilence? Well, science will deal with that. Uh, medicine, uh, vaccines, all this sort of thing. Um, we are putting our focus on areas that we think reflect control. And frankly, I think we're just not paying attention. Um, and the key word is in 14 is if. If you turn, then I will. I don't want to discuss what happens if you don't. But the key word in verse 14 is the word if. Uh, frankly, if we're not paying attention to what's going on now, if that's not getting our attention, then I have this question to ask you. What's it going to take? What's it going to take to bring us to our knees? I remember hearing uh, or reading a sermon by a guy named Shane, Shane Edelman in California, uh, and I'll mention him again at the end. But his comment is, what is it going to take to break the church? What is it going to take to get our attention? Now, um, 714 then lays out the terms of what is necessary for repentance. There are four steps of repentance in 714. Humble yourselves. Pray. Seek my face and turn from your wicked ways. Four steps. Now, what I want to do is go through each one of those steps. Uh, the first step is humble yourself. Okay, the reason it's the first step is because it precedes everything else. Everything else flows out of that. So, 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that in due time he may exalt you. Now, I would suggest to you that this is a New Testament summary of verse 14. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that in due time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. Now, the statement in, in Peter is, you humble yourself. I would suggest you do that and not let him do it for you. Now, what is involved in humbling yourself? Well, I want to give you some uh, four aspects of what's involved in doing that. Incidentally, be praying that God is going to move here. Uh, I have been praying that a great deal, and I know others are. Uh, I think it's tremendous that GHOP is going to do tremendous 
focus on prayer this coming month. That is absolutely critical. And I hope what we're saying here fits in beautifully with what they're doing. Okay, first, realize, first aspect of humbling yourself, realize you don't have control. Not only do you not have control of yourself, over yourself, you don't have control over your circumstances. In fact, Psalm 31.15 says, my times are in your hands. Okay, you don't have control of your times. You don't have control of yourself. And all the plans and ideas you've got you want to pursue, you don't have control of that either. The only one who has control is God. Yeah. I don't get upset over elections, folks. He's in control. He does what he chooses to do to bring about what is necessary for his son to return and establish the kingdom. And we need to start seeing that in that capacity, in that category. Uh, second, recognize that you are helpless. Have a nice day. And there's, there's two sides to this. Helpless and utterly dependent on him. Psalm 23 is a beautiful picture of that fact. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, verse 1. Verse 2 through 6 explain what I shall not want means. In other words, he will meet my needs physically, emotionally, spiritually, even through the valley of the shadow of death, and bring me to his kingdom. Okay? Uh, what that shows is, one, you are utterly dependent. Two, he is utterly dependable. And I've, many of you, I'm sure, have discovered that and found that to be the case. I have found that he is faithful, loving, and kind. I've been walking with him almost 54 years. He has always been faithful, loving, and kind, generous, and cordial. And he is absolutely dependable, and I am discovering that every day. Okay, number, number three, you are not your own. 1 Corinthians 6.19, uh, and that one I want to see if we've got put up on the, on the screen. Okay, if not, I'll go get it. Oh, there it is. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Now, if you are not your own, whose are you? You're his. Yes. And he paid a price for you that you can't even begin to compute. You are not your own. And another way in which 14 applies to us, we are spiritual Israel. We, uh, it's no longer a temple. We're the temple. And so what we do is we recognize that we are not our own. And then four, we turn to him and submit to him uh, because we are not our own. We submit to him for him to accomplish his purposes through us in order that we may glorify him in our bodies. Okay, that's the four aspects of how we go about humbling. I'm not saying that's all of them. 
uh, but that's, that's a significant portion of them. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay? Humble yourselves, first one. That leads to prayer. In other words, if you're going to pray, you want to do that in a spirit of humility. And I would suggest to you that humbling yourself to pray, to seek him in prayer, is extremely effective. I know that Paul said uh, in Ephesians 3.14, I bow my knees before the Father. He is making a statement that he is humbly coming before the Father and then follows one of his great prayers uh, in Ephesians. Now, the fact that God, uh, the fact that humbling yourself before him is extremely effective can be seen in Isaiah 66 too. In Isaiah 66 too, and that one should be on the screen, all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Now, when we pray, um, let me say something else here. When we're praying, when we're following the, we're praying in the context of verse 14 now. When we're praying, one of the things that the judgments of God often do, or should do, is create a sense of desperation. Uh, when we pray and we're praying in accordance with verse 14, our prayer should be motivated by desperation, which results in perseverance and persistence. Uh, most of the time when people are persevering in their prayer, they're desperate. Am I the only one? Okay. I've noticed when I'm desperate, God seems to really respond uh, oftentimes, but you remember the story that Jesus told the parable of the uh, guy that ran to his neighbor because a guest showed up in the middle of the night, and he said, I need some bread, because that's a big deal in the Middle East, and I, I think that's a good sign for them, but it's a big deal in the Middle East, and the guy says, hey, look, I'm in bed. I'm not getting out of bed to get you bread, and uh, so run along. Now, I don't think the Greek says it exactly that way. But this guy is desperate, and he will not take no for an answer. The Syrophoenician woman, when she comes to Jesus about her daughter who is demon-possessed uh, back at her home, she uh, pleading with God, pleading with Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter, Jesus tests her a little bit and says, uh, we don't give the bread to the dogs that goes to the children. She says, even the dogs get crumbs. Jesus says, you don't like faith, do you? Go your way. She's okay. What's the Syrophoenician woman's motivation? Desperation. And she will not take no for an answer. And she perseveres and persists. Jesus says that in Luke 8, uh, 18, 1 through 7, the widow before the unjust judge. Uh, he's not interested in her at all. She's scum as far as he's concerned. 
but she's desperate. We don't know what it is. She's desperate. And so what she does is she, she stays at it, perseveres, persists. He finally gives in. Now, that is not a picture of who God is, the unjust judge. In fact, verse 7 says, Will not the Father speedily uh, answer his children who call to him day and night? But verse 8 has an ominous statement. Jesus says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Okay, what he means by that is will he find persevering, persistent faith? Will he find that kind of faith on earth? Okay, now, what are we going to be praying for? What are we going to be praying for is, um, uh, let, me, let me just make something real clear. Jesus encourages us, tells us to bring our petitions before him and to bring them before the Father. Bring your agendas. Bring your needs. Pray for others. All these things that we do. In fact, Ephesians 2.18 says that because of Christ, what he's done for us, the Spirit brings us into the presence of the Father. If you have the Spirit in you, he'll bring you into the presence of the Father. God is happy to talk to us about our agendas. But I want to say to you, in the context of verse 14, what we are praying for is seeking him. In other words, we come into his presence seeking him, desiring him for the sake of who he is. Not our agendas, not our supplications. Again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. He wants that. But above all, he wants us to come into his presence. And he wants us to seek him for himself. Uh, he, Jesus died for us not just to forgive our sins, folks. He died for us because God wanted reconciliation with us. He wanted communion with us. And so we ought to be sensitive to the fact that he desires to have us in his presence above everything else. You know, a verse that's often cited many times is Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, for I know the thought, I know what I'm pl- I don't plan bad things for you. I plan good things for you. You know, we're always citing that. Never cite, always cite it without the other verses. In fact, Babylon B did a um, sort of a satire on that, and the guy's at the, the newscaster, and he's giving the news, and a hand from off camera hands him a piece of paper. He looks and he says, oh, this just in. Theologians have found other verses in Jeremiah besides 29.11. (laughs) But if you will notice the verses that follow, 12 and 13, and if you pray to come to me and pray to me, I will answer you when you seek me with your heart, your whole heart. Now, one of the things that God has shown me real quick, and I want to share with you. I've shared this in the Sunday school, um, so there's no reason they should suffer by themselves. Uh, I had a difficult time in a case that we were working on, lost it. And again, I asked the first service, please don't go out and tell that story. Uh, I've got a reputation, you know. (laughs) Nonsense. That's called pride, and one is humbled immediately. But when, I, when we lost this case, I was very concerned about it, and I'd been praying to God about it a whole lot. 
And I've been bringing my, quote, agendas to him, which is okay. But when we lost this important case, I got on my knees and I said, what are you trying to show me? And he said this, seek me first. And then he gave me Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now notice that as in a dry and weary land. Okay, as is a simile. It is a picture of what earnestly means. Earnestly I seek you. This is a picture of dry and weary land where there is no water is a picture of what earnestly is when you seek God. If you're in a desert land and you can't find water because there isn't any and it's usually hot in the desert, let's just use Death Valley as a good example, your main goal is to seek him. I'm sorry, your main goal is to get water. That's, that's what this verse is trying to show you. My soul thirsts for you. You're not going to play computer games when you're dying of thirst. Your goal is to get water. All distractions are out the back door. This is what the psalmist is saying. Our problem is, is we are full of distractions. Internet, television, movies, you name it. We're much more readily entitled and kind to incur our time with the exceptions. Ephesians 5 says, redeem the time for the days are evil. What we do is when we seek God, we seek him with all our heart. We thirst after him. If you don't thirst after him, tell him that and ask him to create that thirst. I guarantee you that he will. Also, uh, what we want to do is when we seek after him, how do we do that? Well, let me give you three quick ideas, and I don't have time to go into them. Prayer, like we've been talking about. Scripture. Fasting. Now, you were agreeable till I said the third one, weren't you? <laughs> now, in March, I started fasting on Saturday. Now, I'm not telling you that so you'll see how spiritual I am. One thing God has shown me is how spiritual I'm not. He's been nailing me on the pride that I have, and he's been pulling that up out of areas I had no idea I had it. Okay. But the value of fasting, fasting every Saturday, why? Because that's the best time to pray. If I'm at work, I can't pray. Well, at work, I spell pray with an E, but that's different. I take Saturday because I have the time to seek him. Now, I've never liked fasting. I don't, I've often joked that I never fasted between meals. I didn't like fasting. I, don't like, I don't, didn't like fasting. But let me tell you something. As I have come into his presence on those Saturdays, I've started looking forward to Saturday. Learn what it's like. You know, we seek after him. We get everything away from us, all the distractions, the word, the prayer, and even fasting. 
Now, I'm not saying you have to fast every time, but I'm just saying it is a benefit to you. Uh, one of the things we want him to do, and then I'm going to have to uh, shut it down, is we come into his, we seek him, we come into his presence, we desire to be with him. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. That's part of seeking after him. We seek him because we want to be with him. We seek him because we want him to reveal himself to us. In other words, we are seeking him. We're not talking to him. We're asking him to talk to us. Now, I will tell you this. And this is why I said this earlier. That takes persistence and perseverance. And it's something that has to be learned. But seek him, seek him, seek him. Isaiah, many of, well, before I say this real quick, Isaiah, uh, I suspect, didn't know that he had the problems he did. <laughs> um, and what I'm going to say in relation to that is Psalm 139, 22 and 23, or it may be 23 and 24, I think it's 23 and 24. Ask him to search your heart. As part of the seeking of him, ask him to search your heart. Ask him to show you if there's anything that isn't right. I guarantee you he will if your ears are open. Isaiah, Isaiah 6, Isaiah was in the temple and suddenly saw the holiness of God. Wham, all of a sudden there was the revelation of God's holiness at the same time, and this is true when he reveals his holiness, there was the revelation of Isaiah's unholiness. The result, woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I suspect Isaiah, that's my opinion, I suspect he had no idea about himself until he was confronted by the holiness of God. Also, I suspect the statement, I am a man of unclean lips in living among a people of unclean lips is a statement as to how much the culture he lived in had impacted his life. The culture we live in has impacted the church and many of, it, many of those things we don't even know how. But the revelation of God in his holiness will bring that into sharp contrast not only in the church, but in your lives. And you need to know that before you turn from your wicked ways because you have to know what those are. You know? And that's what God's been showing me, this, this, and this. I'm, I mean, I'm getting up here, the last thing I felt like I was qualified to do was get up here and talk about this because of all that I'm being, seen, being shown. Okay, one other thing, and we're done. Isaiah 57, 15. This is the value when you seek him, when you turn from your wicked ways. This is what he says. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, but also with him who is a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Now, this is what happens when we follow the patterns of verses 13 and 14. Okay? 
I wish we could go on to talk about revival because now we're ready. Well, let me just say uh, that, um, and this is not the Lord talking, don't, don't misunderstand me, but the Lord uh, gave me the word to preach about a month ago. Now, usually Gary's, Gary's always good about giving me advance notice of preaching. I've known about this for two months. Um, and usually he'll give me that kind of notice, and usually I am um, desperately saying, what are we going to talk about, Lord? What, what do you want to talk about? And I don't normally find out until, um, oh, usually 10 days to a week. Um, this time he, he spoke right away. And I want to say to you, I think the reason for that is, and this is my opinion, the reason for this message, he wants to bring revival. Amen. He wants to. Yesterday, after I finished preparing this message, you remember I mentioned this guy, Shane Eidelman? I happened to read his blog yesterday after I finished preparing the message. He just preached the same thing. I think it was entitled, If My People... And he proceeds to break down the four parts of 714. It is my prayer that God is moving on the hearts of pastors and teachers across the nation with this very thing. And it's amazing. I didn't read, I didn't copy his, his sermon, and he didn't copy mine. He didn't know who I am. But the two of us, right together, preaching the same thing, tells me that God wants to bring revival. Okay, let me close with this prayer from Ephesians. I frequently read it, but it fits what we're saying, and then we're done. Now to him, this is Ephesians 3.20 and 21, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Okay, we are done. <laughs> now, those of you that are here, that are maybe here for the first time, or you want to meet elders or staff, you can go into this uh, corner in the, to my left at the back, and any questions you might have. I'm going to be down here. In this corner right here, let's see. Well, maybe I'm not. <laughs> we can talk in the dark, I guess. Okay. But God go with you and go into 2022 with the intent to follow Romans, I mean, verse 13 and 14. And let us move together toward a revival I believe he wants to bring. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, you're dismissed. <laughs>